C13 Originals. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Only a year before, he had been at the pinnacle of power in the American presidency, the center of authority and of attention. Now on Saturday, April 23, 1910, Theodore Roosevelt rose in the Grand Amphitheater of the University of Paris in the Latin Quarter, popularly known as the Sorbonne. The former president was on a 15-month world tour that would include his acceptance of a Nobel Prize and safaris in Africa. In Paris, he spoke perhaps his most celebrated and oft-quoted words. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short to gain it again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I'm John Meacham, and this is It Was Said, Episode 3, Man in the Arena. The address was entitled Citizenship in a Republic a fitting topic for an American in France, the nation that had done so much to make the United States possible during the Revolutionary War. After graduating from Harvard College in 1880, Theodore Roosevelt won a seat in the New York Assembly the next year. He spent the decade publishing a number of books, both about his adventures in the American West and on history. He adored big sky country. While in the Dakotas in the summer of 1886, he gave a 4th of July address in Dickinson that weaved together his sundry passions. He said, Like all Americans, I like big things. Big prairies, big forests and mountains, big wheat fields, railroads, and herds of cattle too. Big factories, steamboats, and everything else. But we must keep steadily in mind that no people were ever yet benefited by riches if their prosperity corrupted their virtue. Roosevelt lost a race for mayor of New York that year and became the U.S. Civil Service Commissioner in 1889. Six years later, he accepted the post of Commissioner of Police in New York City. Before he was done, after the police posting, after the governorship of New York, 
after the Vice Presidency of the United States, after the Presidency, and after his unsuccessful 1912 campaign to reclaim the White House on a third-party Bull Moose ticket. TR would fight against corrupt machine politics, against great business monopolies, and against abysmal working conditions. The present conditions of business cannot be accepted as satisfactory. There are too many who do not prosper enough. And of the few who prosper greatly, there are certainly some whose prosperity does not mean well for the country. He would crusade, sometimes effectively, sometimes less so, for conservation of natural resources, for government regulation of railroads, for food safety, for women's suffrage, and for political reform. In all of this, T.R. anticipated the work of his cousin, Franklin, and of Harry Truman, and of Lyndon Johnson. T.R. said, The nation and government within the range of fair play and a just administration of the law must inevitably sympathize with the men who have nothing but their wages, with the men who are struggling for a decent life, as opposed to men, however honorable, who are merely fighting for larger profits and autocratic control of big business. Theodore Roosevelt in 1910 was a guy who had quit his job too soon. He had been made president with the assassination of McKinley. He served out McKinley's term, that was three years. He gets another term as the elected president. And then, somewhat mysteriously, he decides to step down. This is the historian Evan Thomas, author of The War Lovers, Roosevelt Lodge, Hearst, and the Rush to Empire, 1898. He was too young, he had unfinished business, and he was unhappy with his successor, William Howard Taft. The biggest reason was that Taft wasn't Teddy Roosevelt. And so Roosevelt needs something to do, and he goes on an African safari, and he goes to visit kings and prime ministers in Europe, and he has this tremendous restless energy, and it comes out in this magnificent speech. In Paris in 1910, Roosevelt grounded his words in the setting, that of the ancient university, one that dated from the 13th century. This was the most famous university of medieval Europe at a time when no one dreamed that there was a new world to discover. The new life thus sought can in part be developed afresh from what is round about in the new world, but it can be developed in full only by freely drawing upon the treasure houses of the old world, upon the treasures stored in the ancient abodes of wisdom and learning, such as this where I speak today. It is a mistake for any nation to merely copy another, but it is an even greater mistake. It is a proof of weakness in any nation not to be anxious to learn from one another and willing and able to adapt that learning to the new national conditions and make it fruitful and productive therein. He gave this speech in France, and immediately the French government had the speech printed up and issued to school children. This is a universal message. It was not just for Americans. It was for everybody. His theme was not leadership in the sense we often think of it, and the sense in which T.R. himself practiced it. That of heroic endeavors of great figures, riding to the guns, hearing the trumpets, and savoring triumphs. No, the man in the arena speech, however deployed, considered in full, is more of a meditation on the role and responsibility of the ordinary citizen, and less about the great hero. 
For Roosevelt knew a great truth, that democracies are the fullest manifestation of the totality of their people, that the habits of heart and of mind of the individual matter, that republics rise and fall on the character of the populace. A democratic republic such as ours, an effort to realize in its full sense government by, of, and for the people, represents the most gigantic of all possible social experiments, the one fraught with great responsibilities alike for good and evil. The success of republics like yours and like ours means the glory and our failure the despair of mankind. And for you and for us, the question of the quality of the individual citizen is supreme. This is at once thrilling and terrifying. Thrilling because it means that the rule of law, the possibilities of prosperity, and the preservation of rights and common respect are up to all of us. Terrifying because, well, because all those things are up to us, not to some distant force. Not to elected leaders, not to an Olympus, but to our neighborhoods and to our common daily ethos. With you here and with us in my own home, in the long run, success or failure will be conditioned upon the way in which the average man, the average woman, does his or her duty, first in the ordinary, everyday affairs of life, and next in those great occasional cries which call for heroic virtues. The average citizen must be a good citizen if our republics are to succeed. In Paris, Roosevelt warned against world weariness. Citizenship must be informed by belief in progress, in change, in betterment. The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride in cynicism, a cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work which the critic himself never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness which will not accept contact with life's realities, all these are marks, not as the possessor would feign to think of superiority, but of weakness. The role is easy. There is none easier, save only the role of the man who sneers alike at both criticism and performance. He was no intellectual snob. Indeed, T.R., like Thomas Jefferson, saw education as essential to liberty. I believe, of course, in giving to all the people a good education, but the education must contain much besides book learning in order to be really good. We must ever remember that no keenness and subtleness of intellect, no polish, no cleverness, in any way make up for the lack of the great solid qualities, self-restraint, self-mastery, common sense, the power of accepting individual responsibility and yet of acting in conjunction with others, courage and resolution. These are the qualities which mark a masterful people. I speak to a brilliant assemblage. I speak in a great university which represents the flower of the highest intellectual development. I pay all homage to intellect and to elaborate and specialized training of the intellect and yet I know I shall have the assent of all of you present when I add that more important still are the commonplace, everyday qualities and virtues. 
FTR once recalled the typical American for whom he had governed. In his autobiography, the former president reprinted a cartoon of an elderly, bewhiskered man, his feet by a fire, reading a copy of The President's Message in a newspaper. The caption? His favorite author. T.R. loved it. This was the old fellow whom I always used to keep in mind, he recalled. He had probably been in the Civil War in his youth. He had worked hard ever since he left the Army. He had been a good husband and father. He brought up his boys and girls to work. He did not wish to do injustice to anyone else, but he wanted justice done to himself and to others like him. And I was bound to secure justice for him if it lay in my power to do so. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cami Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you can always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cami Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology, and Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Born in a four-story brownstone on East 20th Street in New York City in 1858, son of a prominent family, T.R. was a sickly child who suffered from terrible asthma attacks. Nobody, he recalled, seemed to think I would live. Finding solace in stories and poetry of adventure, of exploration, and of martial valor, Roosevelt thought of books as the greatest of companions. As President of the United States, he would read all the novels, of Anthony Trollope. Nicknamed T.D., the young Roosevelt fought through his illnesses. There were all kinds of things I was afraid of at first, he recalled, but by acting as if I was not afraid, I gradually ceased to be afraid. A miserable stagecoach ride north had changed him forever. T.D., trying to recover from an asthma attack, was en route to Moosehead Lake in Maine when two boys his age started bullying him. Roosevelt tried to fight back, but failed. He was too weak to defend himself. Humiliated, he decided then and there to do something about it. T.R. recalled, The experience taught me what probably no amount of good advice could have taught me. I made up my mind that I must try to learn so that I would not again be put in such a helpless position. He would learn to box, and he put himself under the tutelage of John Long, a former prizefighter. T.D. willed himself to strength, lifting weights at a gymnasium on 28th Street and at home. He wrestled, rode horses, hunted, hiked, and climbed. He was this sort of famously energetic person, right, and always ready for a fight. This is Candace Millard, author of River of Doubt, Theodore Roosevelt's Darkest Journey. So whenever he faced whether it was a personal loss, sorrow, grief, 
frustration, whatever it was, he would throw himself into these very difficult physical challenges. And that really did shape him. As a national politician in an increasingly visual media age, he was shrewd about how he appeared to the masses. You never saw a photograph of me playing tennis, Roosevelt wrote. I'm careful about that. Photographs on horseback, yes. Tennis, no. His conception of himself was clear and certain. Powerful, vigorous men of strong animal development must have some way in which their animal spirits can find vent, T.R. recalled, and he was surely such a man. Once Roosevelt started, he never stopped. Do you know the two most wonderful things I've seen in your country? An English visitor wrote after talking with T.R. in the White House. Niagara Falls and the President of the United States, both great wonders of nature. He thrilled to public life. In remarks at Groton School when he was governor of New York, Roosevelt said, If a man has courage, goodness, and brains, no limit can be placed on the greatness of the work he may accomplish. He is the man needed in politics today. One of his eager listeners was his young cousin, Franklin. Even though you think of him, and he certainly was this very energetic, kind of full of fight guy, he was also incredibly interested in compassion, character, moral strength, and justice. He talked about all of those things, which I think people often forget. They think of the crazy cowboy Theodore Roosevelt, but he had matured a lot by that point in his life. And I think he understood some absolute truths about life and about human nature. Born to great privilege, T.R. adopted the progressive spirit of the time, the passion for reform that grew out of the revulsion at the capitalistic excesses of a rapidly industrializing America. Roosevelt targeted those whom he referred to as the malefactors of great wealth and argued that the Jeffersonian rights in the Declaration of Independence included the right of the worker to a living wage, to reasonable hours of labor, to decent working conditions, and to freedom of thought and speech and industrial representation. To him, progress results not from the crowding out of the lower classes by the upper, but on the contrary, from a steady rise of the lower classes to the level of the upper. Rational progressives, no matter how radical, are well aware that nothing the government can do will make some men prosper. But we wish to shape conditions so that a greater number of the small men in business shall be able to succeed, and so that the big man who is dishonest shall not be allowed to succeed at all. It is, T.R. once said, a base outrage to oppose a man because of his religion or birthplace, and all good citizens will hold any such effort in abhorrence. That was, however, a sentiment more easily articulated than widely realized, even for Roosevelt himself. It would be a mistake to hold Roosevelt up as a forerunner or as a prophet of the racially and ethically diverse America of the 21st century. His vision of the country was, as the title of a popular play had it, of a melting pot. But for him, the pot, to extend the metaphor, had been smelted from the noble achievements of the Anglo-Saxon conquerors of the American continent, and those who joined the American experience owed those conquerors their respect and their fealty. 
The rude, fierce settler who drives the savage from the land lays all civilized mankind under a debt to him, Roosevelt wrote in his trilogy, The Winning of the West. Roosevelt was uninterested in revisiting questions of justice about the white conquest of that which had belonged to Native Americans. During the past century, he wrote, a good deal of sentimental nonsense has been talked about our taking the Indians' land. T.R. had views that were racist, that had to do with white superiority. They were shared by most Americans who could vote in 1904, but that doesn't provide any excuse for it. This is the presidential historian, Michael Beschloss. At the time, it didn't gather the kind of attention that it does now because we look at this through a different lens. Nowadays, as we look at TR, there are many admirable accomplishments and qualities, but at the same time, especially by the standards of this year, this is someone who is a racist and white supremacist. TR's capacity on some occasions to stand for equality and for openness and in other contexts to argue for the destiny of the Anglo-Saxon peoples to rule the world, was a particular example of a more universal cognitive American dissonance. We believed in life and liberty for some. We simultaneously believed in imposing our will on the lives and liberties of others on the grounds that they were innately inferior. The tension between these visions of identity, of assimilation, and of power have long shaped American life and rarely more vividly than in the age of the first Roosevelt. In Paris, he spoke to the better angels of human nature. The good citizen will demand liberty for himself, and as a matter of pride, he will see to it that others receive liberty which he thus claims as his own. Probably the best test of true love of liberty in any country is the way in which minorities are treated in that country. The gravest wrong upon his country is inflicted by that man, whatever his station, who seeks to make his countrymen divide primarily in the line that separates class from class, occupation from occupation, men of more wealth from men of less wealth, instead of remembering that the only safe standard is that which judges each man on his worth as a man. Such is the only true democratic test the only test that can, with propriety, be applied in a republic. In a letter written from the White House in December 1902, the first President Roosevelt described the nature of the office. Well, I have been president for a year and a quarter, and whatever the future may hold, I think I may say that during that year and a quarter, I have been as successful as I had any right to hope or expect. Of course, political life in a position such as this is one long strain on the temper, one long acceptance of the second best, one long experiment of checking one's impulses with an iron hand and learning to subordinate one's own desires to what some hundreds of associates can be forced or cajoled or led into desiring. Every day, almost every hour, I have to decide very big as well as very little questions and in almost each of them, I must determine just how far it is safe to go in forcing others to accept my views and standards, and just how far I must subordinate what I deem expedient, and indeed occasionally what I deem morally desirable, to what is possible under the given conditions to achieve. Often when dealing with some puzzling affair, I find myself thinking what Lincoln would have done. 
It has been very wearing, but I have thoroughly enjoyed it, for it is fine to feel one's hand guiding great machinery with at least the purpose, and I hope the effect, of guiding it for the best interests of the nation as a whole. A believer in the power of the presidency, T.R. also warned against demagoguery. Of one man in especial, beyond anyone else, the citizens of a republic should beware, and that is of the man who appeals to them to support him on the ground that he is hostile to other citizens of the republic, that he will secure for those who elect him in one shape or another, profit at the expense of other citizens of the Republic. It makes no difference whether he appeals to class hatred or class interest, to religious or anti-religious prejudice. The man who makes such an appeal should always be presumed to make it for the sake of furthering his own interest. If a public man tried to get your vote by saying that he will do something wrong in your interest, you can be absolutely certain that if ever it becomes worth his while, he will do something wrong against your interest. The citizen of a republic must also be engaged in the world beyond his own borders. So far from patriotism being inconsistent with a proper regard for the rights of other nations, I hold that the true patriot, who is as jealous of national honor as a gentleman of his own honor, will be careful to see that the nations neither inflict nor suffer wrong, just as a gentleman scorns equally to wrong others or to suffer others to wrong him. I do not for one moment admit that a nation should treat other nations in a different spirit from that in which an honorable man would treat other men. Roosevelt would return to the United States and, in 1912, attempt a comeback. He could never rest. Though he himself would never regain temporal power, the power of his message in France endures. Character must show itself in the man's performance both of the duty he owes himself and of the duty he owes the state. The man's foremost duty is owed to himself and his family. He must pull his own weight first, and only after this can his surplus strength be of use to the general public. A message from the past that speaks powerfully to our present. On the next episode of It Was Said, Season 2, Margaret Thatcher resolves not to change course despite mounting criticism of her economic policy. You turn if you want to, she said. The ladies not for turning. Excerpts from this speech were read by Teddy Roosevelt historian Joe Weigand. Thank you for listening to It Was Said Season 2, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Production led by Margot Gray. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination, research, support, and consultation by Lloyd Lockridge, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Bob Tabador. Marketing, PR, Sales, Operations, and Business Affairs, led by Maura Curran, 
Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz of the History Channel. Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. Our closing credits theme song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We're miles apart, but safe in dreams. You're running far. Beyond the dark, we'll always be one of the Fall on your knees to find a love. Your light to me, my only son. You'll always shine for me. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.